We're going to consider, as I said, uh, uh, the change in Saul of Tarsus, uh, the persecutor of the Christians, to uh, Paul the Apostle, the proclaimer of the gospel. So the message is entitled, From Persecutor to Preacher. Well, let's pray as we consider this. Father in heaven, uh, this passage reminds us uh, of your great power. It also reminds us of the wonders of your love and grace. And uh, we ask that as we consider uh, what you did in the life of this man so long ago, that we may see that you are still the same God, even today, able to do the same things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, watch uh, much TV or even if you listen to the radio, I know serials are not uh, around so much these days, but uh, perhaps you can remember a little bit. Uh, there used to be uh, a TV program, and except for the very first episode, all the other episodes seem to say previously on MacLeod's Daughters. That may ring a bell with some of you. Or other ones, they might be the story so far and you would get a little bit of a recap. Uh, and as we progress through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we need to periodically remind ourselves of what the Apostle has already said. Now, although this is only our third look at the letter, and we're still in the first chapter, I think it's appropriate to briefly recap. And I do invite you once again to have your, your Bibles open at, at Galatians chapter 1. And as you do that, you can see what I want to remind you of, that Paul has already declared himself to be an apostle sent from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul has already declared that the gospel is that Jesus came on a rescue mission. Paul has already declared that there's only one gospel. He's declared his astonishment that the Galatians should so quickly turn from that gospel. He's declared an anathema, a curse, on anyone who preaches a different gospel. And he's declared that in preaching this gospel, he's not trying to please men, he's seeking to please God. The presidential election in the US is, is, is heating up. Uh, but I don't think any of us have forgotten that the, the, the president before the present one was George W. Bush. And he received a lot of negative publicity for declaring, so I understand, I didn't catch the news clip that said it, but apparently he declared at one stage that God had told him to invade Iraq, that God had told him to do it. <clears throat> and don't we sort of instinctively recoil when we hear people making statements like that? We go, whoa, that's going a bit far, isn't it? Well, as we come to verses 11 to 24 of this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find Paul not only claiming that God and God alone had made him an apostle, we also find him claiming that the gospel he preaches was given to him by God. Well, people were and are, are very dismissive of Mr. Bush's claims. But what are we to make of Paul's claims? Well, let's consider what he has to say. Uh, and uh, I want to do it under uh, a few little headings here, as you can see. Paul's credibility, Paul's background, 
Paul's conversion and uh, Paul's disappearance. <clears throat> His credibility, first of all, we see that in verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That should make us realise, first of all, that the credibility of the man and the credibility of his message are inextricably combined and intertwined. What I mean by that, I mean that you can't have one without the other. If Paul's apostleship is called into question, so is the gospel. And if the gospel is called into question, so is Paul's apostleship. Back in, And that's why I wanted us to read verse 1 again. And, and again in verse 11, Paul is claiming to be a true, a bona fide apostle, isn't he? Well, if he's going to be a bona fide, a true apostle, he needs to establish his commissioning as such by God himself, by Christ himself. <clears throat> the original apostles, of course, were men who had witnessed Christ's resurrection. That was one of the defining marks of being an apostle. Well, Paul wasn't there. But for Paul, having witnessed Christ's resurrection actually took place on the road to Damascus. That's where Paul met the resurrected Christ. And so Paul was able to say, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He asked those two questions of the Corinthians when he wrote to them. So, as such, he needed to demonstrate not only that he had seen the Lord, the resurrected Christ, but to demonstrate the power to perform miracles. That was another touchstone of being a true apostle. Miracles like the ones uh, that are recorded about Peter and John, such as the healing of the crippled beggar. And Paul was able to say, again, as he wrote to the Corinthians, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you by Paul, he says, when he writes to the Corinthians. Those things that mark out the apostles happened to you, Corinthians, when I was there. And as such, again, as one claiming to be a, a, an authentic apostle, he needed to possess the unique authority that was given to the original 12. Remember what Jesus said to them? He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And Paul is claiming that authority as well, that he's been given that authority. And so therefore he was able to say, wasn't he, that he who departs from Paul, uh, as if they departed from the other apostles, was departing from Christ. And to depart from Christ, of course, was to depart from God himself. So there's Paul's credibility. It's on the line, as we might think. And that presents us with two choices, doesn't it? You and I. Either Paul's apostleship and Paul's gospel really do from, come from Jesus Christ and God the Father and therefore are to be believed and acted upon, or they don't. That was the choice that confronted the Galatians in the early years of the first century. And that's the choice that confronts us 
in the early years of the 21st century. Either Paul's apostleship and Paul's gospel really are from God, or they're not. Something else needs to be said. There are some people, uh, you may have read or heard, uh, who argue that many of the things that Paul said and taught are different from what Jesus said and taught. Now, that's an easy statement to make, but there's absolutely no basis for such a statement. There's no documentary proof for any such argument. There's no contradiction between what Jesus said and what Paul said. Now, it's true, Paul makes pronouncements on matters which are not addressed by Jesus. Jesus didn't say anything about the eldership. Jesus didn't say anything in words about homosexuality. But if, as Paul claims, he is an apostle chosen by God and the recipient of the revelation of God, then what he says is what God says and what Jesus would have said if had been necessary. You see, the Galatians of the first century and you and I in the 21st century, we need to take heed of what the Thessalonians did, another group of people to whom Paul went, when they heard the gospel. Because we're told that when they received the word of God, which they heard from Paul and his brethren, they welcomed it. How? Not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in those who believe. Is that what you do? Do you do what those Thessalonians did? Do you accept the scriptures as God's word? Paul's credibility, first of all. Secondly, Paul's background. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is actually a part of Paul's argument for uh, his credibility, the credibility of his claims in regard to his apostleship and to the gospel because he reminds his readers of what they've heard about his previous way of life. In other words, he's saying, think about what I was like before I was converted. We can't help, can we, these days uh, in the newspapers or on the TV and the radio hearing a lot about radical, fanatical, extremist Muslims uh, they're there in the news very, very regularly. Well, I suggest that we could say that Paul was a radical, fanatical, extremist Jew. Always, I almost go so far as to say that he was the first century equivalent of Osama bin Laden. I mean, you read what he said about himself. And in, in Acts chapter 8, earlier to the, the part that we read, Luke wrote this, he said, On the day that Stephen was stoned to death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul, that's of course as we know Paul's pre-Christian name, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. 
And then uh, Luke follows that up by what he says about Saul as he then was in Acts chapter 9. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This was an all-consuming passion of, of Saul's. That being the case, it was no wonder then, was it, that it was hard to believe that this man had become a Christian. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? I mean, how else would you react if you heard that? The Pharisees, and remember Saul was a Pharisee, uh, they were renowned for their zeal for the law. But Saul's zeal knew no bounds. He out-Phariseed the Pharisees, if you like. He was the ducks. He was the top of the class. You think I'm over-exaggerating? Well, from his other writings, we can gain an assessment of this previous way of life of his in Judaism. When he wrote to the Philippian Christians, he wrote this. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Remember I said that Saul was a, a zealous, fanatical, extremist Jew. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Can you imagine anything more zealous or fanatical than that? When he wrote to Timothy, he said, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And this is what he wrote to the Corinthians. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why not? Because I persecuted the church of God. The backgrounds of, of some people would make us very hesitant, very sceptical, wouldn't it, of accepting their claims to have become Christians if they made such a claim. Let me suggest some. If in his latter days, Osama bin Laden had said he'd become a Christian. Or closer to home, um, Bob Brown said he'd become a Christian. Or Prince Charles. Or Julia Gillard. Or Shane Warne. Now, the list is endless. How hard would it be to believe that they had really changed? And you could draw up your own list, and just as I could draw up my own, I know who the top of my list would be as to hard to believe. And it'd be Eric Neil Harvey. It'd be myself. Paul's credibility, Paul's background. What about Paul's conversion? What about Paul's conversion? Verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so the verse goes on. 
You see, Paul has made it abundantly clear, hasn't he, that in relation to Christ and the gospel, he not only had no time for it, he also did all in his power to destroy it. But then we come to that wonderful little word, but. But. Paul had no intention of letting up on his persecution of the Christians. But. Paul was not travelling to Damascus to attend a course on the basics of the Christian faith. But. Paul was not planning to become an apostle in the near future. Or if at all. But. Paul was not considering deserting Judaism for Christianity. But. What all this means is that a person who becomes a Christian does so according to God's timetable. Because there's not only that wonderful word, but, but you notice the next two words, but when God. But when God. That made all the difference. God's timing has, has two parts to it, really, at least two parts. There's the eternal aspect. All Christians are from all eternity chosen by God to be his. That is, prior to their birth, prior even to their conception, prior even to the world's creation. And we've said that in two of the hymns we've sung. That's the eternal aspect. But there's the temporal aspect as well. All who become Christians become so during their life here on earth. You don't become a Christian before you're born. You don't become a Christian after you die. If you become a Christian, it's during this time. God's eternal plan, in other words, is put into effect in, in time and space, in the here and now. Paul was chosen before the world began. It came to pass in his lifetime. It came to pass on the road to Damascus. There's a theological word for this, or two words, I should say, and the term is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Paul was called by God's grace, and that grace broke down his resistance. Has that happened to you? So I've talked about Paul's credibility, his background, and his conversion. And then the other one seems a little bit out of place in a sense, Paul's disappearance, but it takes up quite a few verses here, 16 to 23. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what's happening here, we're finding that after his conversion, Paul virtually disappears from the scene for about three years. And there's been much conjecture, as there always is when, there, when there's a silence, uh, as to what Paul did 
during those three years? Well, let me just say a couple of things. We would think, wouldn't we, that, that such a dramatic conversion would take some time to, to sink in and to work itself out. I know it's not a very good comparison, but, but people, you know, Grand Slam winners uh, or AFL premiers and so on, they often say that it took a while for the win to sink in. Well, how much more with, with, with Paul and his conversion? Paul was a new creation, a new creature, and he was faced with all the consequences of being so. And we mustn't forget that Jesus says, count the cost. If you think you're going to want to be a Christian, count the cost. And maybe that's what Paul had to do in those three years. On the other hand, don't you find it hard to imagine that Paul kept quiet about Jesus and didn't say anything for three years, didn't preach the gospel? We don't know. We don't know. But after that three years, he follows that with a visit to Jerusalem. And even then, he spends time only with Peter and James. Perhaps they compared notes. I mean, after all, Peter and James had been converted too. Not as dramatically as Paul, but they'd been converted. And then after that short visit, he's off to Syria and Cilicia. I imagine that once again he had to demonstrate how true it was, wherever he went, how true it was that the man who formerly persecuted Christians was now really one of them and that he was preaching the faith he had once tried to destroy. I see, Paul, don't you get the impression, Paul seems to be at pains in these verses to demonstrate that his apostleship came directly from God. You see, notice what he didn't do. He didn't consult with any man, not the apostles. And when he went to Jerusalem, he only saw two of them. Isn't he indicating that it was God who called him to be an apostle and it was God who revealed to him the content of the gospel? And then we've just got this one last little verse with which we conclude. Paul writes, and they praised God because of me. I mean, has, has Paul, is he just giving us a travel log? Has he told us all of this just to give us his testimony or, or a record of some of his travels? Of course, we all enjoy telling others about our travels. You want to know about us? Well, we'll tell you. Uh, and we like to tell others where we've been and what we've done. And most of us like to hear such things. It can be very interesting. But it also ought to be our delight to tell others about how God has called us into his kingdom. It doesn't have to be as dramatic a conversion as that of Saul of Tarsus to catch people's interest. But I think Paul has a much deeper issue in mind. Because if we take all those verses together, from verses 11 through to 23, uh, and put them after, of course, verses 1 to 10, we find that Paul is asserting two truths, that he's a genuine apostle, first of all, and that his gospel is the genuine gospel, secondly. But that presupposes a third truth, and that is this, that we ignore either of those twin truths to our peril. We ignore those to our peril. 
our eternal peril. Well, what should be the result then? Well, it should be uh, as it was then. We should praise God that God made him an apostle, that God made him a preacher of the gospel, that God enabled him to experience God's grace in Christ and then preach the gospel with Christ's authority. But let me leave you then with one last thought. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of you and it could be said of me, I praise God because of such and such a person. People praised God because of Paul. Do people praise God because of you? Quite a question, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the wonderful, powerful, irresistible grace that you demonstrated in the life of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Lord, we pray that, uh, that grace would work in our lives as well and that to some measure at least may be that people can praise God uh, because of us, because of what you've done in us and for us. May it be so, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.